Amen. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 33, and we're moving back into the book of Ephesians. We started in Ephesians in June and have slowly been walking uh, through. And uh, I'm excited about the section we're moving into because we're moving into a section on uh, marriage, on family, on parenting. And uh, we uh, originally weren't intending on having a family service this Sunday, but one of the challenges for just being a church plant is that it takes a lot of volunteers to uh, do what we do. And one of the things we're committed to uh, is we really, as best we can, don't want our volunteers to, to burn out. We don't want you uh, to get to the point where you're not uh, excited or joyful to come to come to church. And one of the volunteer intensive uh, ministries is just a children's ministry, and it's it's tough on them because uh, they're out of the service. And so, one of the things we really want to be committed to is not having anyone out of the service more than twice a month. So on the Sundays where we just don't have enough people to serve, we'll just bring the, bring the kids in because we'd rather um, have them in here than have our volunteers burn out. And uh, so this Sunday, it's actually very appropriate because the section in January we're going to be looking at is Paul's um, commands, the way the gospel transforms families. So this morning, talking about marriage, husbands, wives, uh, we're actually going to have the kids in here next week because next week Paul addresses them specifically. And I thought he's going to assume they're in there and he's going to tell them, children, obey your parents. So parents, if that's something you would like for your children to hear, make sure they're here next Sunday because that's what they'll hear. But kids, don't be afraid because that's not the only point. Paul also tells the fathers, don't anger your children. So there'll be something where you can poke your dad in the ribs too. But we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, 21. Um, the section really from verse 22 all the way to 6, verse 9, are all about the household codes. How does the gospel transform our home, our marriages, our families, our parenting, our work? How does the gospel transform our home? And what we're looking at this morning is marriage, gender, husbands, wives. So let's pick up verse 21. We're going to read through verse 33. So submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we're going to take this morning. So today is about marriage, husband, wives. Next Sunday, we'll look at parenting. And then the Sunday after that, we'll look at 
at work. And I don't think there's anything in just culturally over the last four or five years that's caused more cultural confusion and tension than questions of gender, sexuality, marriage. You can see these things kind of worked out here in this passage. This passage is the longest section in all of the Bible that deals specifically with what Christian marriage should look like. In some sense, I feel totally negligent that we're only spending one week on it because there's so much here. But if you're on our email list, I sent you other things where you can, you can look at. So that uh, appeases my conscience a little. But there are m- multiple kind of current things. Even this week, I don't know if you saw on the news, but something struck my attention this week. Uh, the APA, the American Psychological Association, marked a new uh, mental disorder. And the mental disorder's name is masculinity. And so it said that there's certain uh, components of masculinity, stoicism, competitiveness, dominance, aggression. The, this vision of masculinity that may be summed up by the image of the closed-mouthed cowboy John Wayne uh, is now considered disorder. So we, don't, we have such a confusion. How do you even think about what it means to be male, to be female, to be husband, to be wife? I don't have to go into any of the uh, things explaining that marriage is a topic of contention. So let's look, and what I want to do is kind of outline what this passage says, and there's four key lessons that I think Paul draws out here that we're going to look at. We'll see the prerequisites of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the passion of marriage, and the place. But as you look, kind of get a sense of the whole, verse 21, the word submitting to one another, that's like the umbrella command. That's, uh, if you try and like diagram, if you're trying to do like your eighth grade English teacher and diagram from verse 21 all the way to chapter 6, 9, it's like this mess of a nightmare. You have no idea what's going with what. But the kind of the main verb is submit to one another. So everybody comes under the banner of submitting to one another, and he's going to give you the bullet points of how uh, wives do it, husbands do it, children do it, fathers do it, uh, workers, uh, servants, and masters. So all of them, this is how you submit to one another, the different categories. So that's the main thing. So everyone is called to submit. And what we see here in Ephesians is that there's two marks of a spirit-filled church. You, You sing to one another, and you submit to one another. The Holy Spirit is uh, in you. You sing and you submit. And what's really interesting is in the Greco-Roman world, so the first one is wives, then husbands, children, then fathers, uh, servants, and then masters. In the Greco-Roman world, the first group would have been assumed, and then the second group wouldn't have been talked to at all. So it's really interesting because Paul is just taking kind of the natural hierarchy they live in and almost inverting it. He's flipping it upside down. It says everybody has a role. So in, in, in the world of Ephesus, like the fathers would have assumed that wives, children, and ser- uh, servants submit to them, but they wouldn't have thought they had to submit likewise. We don't reciprocate that. And so it's this flipping them upside down. I think it's interesting. You just look at the, the thing. There's 40 words given to wives and 115 words given to husbands. I don't, I don't know when the imbalance, maybe we need more commands to get it through. So the structure, verse 22 through 24 is wives, and then each of the structure, everyone gets a command, then a reason. And it's really interesting that Paul gives everyone not only the command, but the reason. The, the, the reason always follows the command. So wives, submit to your husbands, and that's based on the, the relationship between Christ and his church. 
Husbands, love your wives, and that's based on the relationship between Christ and his church. And then it summarizes it in verse 33. So let's look first at marriage's prerequisites. What's a prerequisite to this kind of marriage? And in chapter 5, verse 1, one of the themes is he says, uh, imitate Imitate the Lord Jesus. So you're to be imitators of the Lord Jesus, and then you're to be spirit-filled. So in verse 18, this is the result. This type of marriage that he's going to lay out is a case study on what marriage looks like between two spirit-filled people. So if you have two people who are spirit-filled, this is what it looks like. And the presence and the power of the Spirit is a prerequisite to experiencing the beauty and the glory that he unpacks there. See, the powerful work of the Holy Spirit is the thing that has to erode all of your natural human selfishness, your tendencies to selfishness. It's the power and the work of the Spirit that's going to free you, so it's better for you to give to another than to receive. In one sense, this part of Ephesians 5 is a case study. This is what marriage looks like with two Spirit-filled people. The wife will joyfully grant to her husband the leadership role. And the husband will take on Jesus' model of leadership where he would rather die than abuse her. And he is going to say, I'm going to dedicate my life to you thriving. And that's what it looks like in a spirit-filled Relation. One of the challenges, so everybody has a challenge, so the challenge for the men is that their ego and self-perception has to be so shaped by the cross, this is the way the Spirit is working in you, that you then reorient yourself so you say, I will give everything so that you will thrive, so that you'll be nourished, so that you'll be sanctified. And I need to hear from you. I need to know what that means. How can I help you? And the woman will have her posture so reoriented by the cross so she gladly will submit to him in that relationship. So the, the spirit is the prerequisite for this. But notice, did you notice how often the word the church comes in? Because the church is the pattern. And what I find so interesting is each has to look, what he says is the, the core reality is the church, and then a spirit-filled godly marriage is the, the analogy, the echo, the illustration. But in one sense, what Paul's saying here, you can't understand marriage unless you understand the church. You, you know, maybe the most important thing you need if you want to have a healthy marriage is you need a healthy ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the kind of the technical word for our doctrine of the church. And understanding the church comes before understanding marriage. So if you actually, the most relevant thing you could hear is you could learn about the church because it's what is to be the, the, the reality. And then healthy marriage grows out of that. The, the church submits to Christ. The church is the reality that all of these things are built on. It's the first principles so one says there's nothing more relevant or practical for your life than to learn good theology, because that's what's going to fuel and shape how you think about all these other things. So the prerequisites are the you need the, the power of the Spirit, you need the pattern, which is Christ's love for His church and the church response to Christ. But let's think for a minute about the purpose of marriage. So in ancient cultures, or more traditional cultures, marriage is or was a business proposition, so in ancient cultures, uh, you didn't marry kind of for love, you married for family and society. 
So it was a social and an economic joining of two families. And you can see this illustrated in uh, movies, stories, you know, things like Pride and Prejudice, things like Crazy Rich Asians. You have the traditional culture where uh, marriage is about more than simply your own personal fulfillment. It's about the, it's a business proposition. You have two families coming together. Now, here in the West, uh, not, there, there's some places in America that are still somewhat traditional, but by and large in the West, marriage is not a business proposition between two families. It's about your own personal fulfillment. So you're looking for someone uh, to fulfill you. And what's so fascinating about the, what the Bible says here is the Bible says you're both wrong. Like the traditional is not the biblical and the modern is not the biblical either. The Bible actually affirms and confronts elements of both of those. What we see here is this remarkable picture that the purpose of marriage is actually gospel reenactment. The purpose is for you to do in the life of your spouse what Jesus has done in and to and through you. The purpose is gospel reenactment. Notice how often did you hear how just as, just as, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. You're to do all of these things just as. You nourish and cherish because that's what he's done for you. You love, you give, you do all of these things because that's what he's done for you. You're reenacting in the life of another what's been already done for you and to you and through you. So the whole point, the whole purpose is actually to make you better. Notice those words, to sanctify you, to wash you, to cleanse you. You know, sanctification is just a fancy way of saying we love someone enough not to leave them where they are. We want them to grow. We want them to develop. We want them uh, to become less fearful, less angry, less greedy, less prideful. We want them to become more loving, more holy, more gracious, more kind, more forgiving. It's becoming who you were meant to be in Christ. And one of the challenges we have just with marriage is we like to pretend that we're either there, we're a finished product and we got it all figured out, all our ducks are in a row, or we like to pretend that we're actually better than we are. And you did it when you were dating, and you still do it now, but maybe not as much directed to your wife. Like when Cynthia and I were dating, I used to do absurd things. Like I would buy tickets to the, uh, the Bach uh, Music Festival and take her to these concerts. I'm trying to pretend that I'm more cultured and sophisticated than I am. And it would take an act of every bit of willpower I had to stay awake but I wanted her to think I was better than I was. And that's what we, we pretend, we, um, we try to act like we have it all put it together. The whole point of marriage is you don't have it all put together and you need help getting it together. And nothing will destroy a marriage or a church, there's connected, nothing will destroy a marriage and a church like our consumeristic mentality, like consumerism. And one of the hard things for us, just because as modern 21st century Americans, we swim in the ocean of corporate capitalistic consumerism. It's everywhere. That is the sea we swim in. And we view everything through the lens of what's in it for me. Like, I'm a consumer. And if you translate that mentality to your marriage or to things like your church or your children, you'll destroy them. Because those are covenantal relationships, not consumer relationships. 
So consumer relationships, like in a marriage, says, you know, I'll be the husband I should be as long as you're being the wife I think you should be. So as long as you meet my needs on my terms, man, I'm in. But as soon as I start feeling like you're not meeting my needs on my terms, I'm out. It's just like I, you know, I am with the grocery store. Meet my needs on my terms at a price I'm willing to pay, I'm here. But as soon as something happens where it's not my needs on my terms, I'm out. And you translate that mentality to your church and your family, you'll destroy it. And that's hard for us because that's just the, the ocean we're swimming in. But there's nothing more powerful and more beautiful than an anti-consumeristic marriage. A marriage that says, I find my joy in your joy. I find my happiness in your happiness. And actually, when you have two people who are doing what is said here, who are committed to finding their pleasure in the pleasure of another, you create this incredible, beautiful, gospel-fueled, I don't even know what to call it. You can just see it. It's, it's moving. It's, it's moving. And the, there's nothing more powerful than someone finding their joy in the joy of another. And that's the purpose of marriage. It's gospel reenactment. You're doing in the life of another what has been done in your life. Now, let's think about the third thing, the passion of marriage. And Cynthia warned me, she said, all right, be careful here. The kids are in here. So what's the passion of marriage? Did you notice how often, especially husbands, let's read it. So look at husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, in verse 25. And then verse 28, in the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes, he cherishes it. 33, however, let each one of you love his wife. You know, the fuel that's fueling this kind of self-sacrificial giving is love. But again, just like marriage, love is a hard thing for us to understand. You know, the way we currently think about love, we could use a little help. So, for example, like we think about love as love is a ditch. Do you know what you do with ditches? You fall in them. Do you know how we talk about love? You fall into it. Like it was just a hole you were walking through life and all of a sudden you just fell into it. Oh, we think about love like it's a virus that you didn't mean to, but you were just out and all of a sudden you, you just caught it. Like you were at this party and you heard the, this laugh from an angel like you never heard before. And you just kinda, it was like a virus you caught. Or we think about love like it's like this tidal wave where love is this emotional tidal wave that'll just sweep me through life where I'll never have any doubts, fears, or worries. And everyone who's been alive more than four days knows that that's just not a good understanding of what love really is. And actually, you can see the model for what real love is, is here, is laid out for us by how Christ has treated us, how he's treated his church. There's a whole cycle of not emotional um, feelings, like Ephesians, or Philippians chapter 2 that talks about Christ who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of the servant. He stepped out of heaven, came to earth to die on the cross to redeem us and save us. It doesn't say that he was taking a quiet stroll through heaven and then fell down here. I'm like, oh, how did I get here? Oh, wow, I just fell into this. You know, it was a disposition. It was an act. And notice all of the act language. He gave he sanctifies, he cleanses, he nourishes, he cherishes. 
See, all of these things about what real love is or all of these things are actions that lead to dispositions. Love is a habit. It's a habit of the heart. I heard a story about Elizabeth Elliot, who's the wife of Jim Elliot. Then you know, he died as a missionary, and then she came back, and I was a professor at Westminster Seminary, and she was at one of her students' uh, wedding, and the students, you know, the, doing the toast kind of thing, and said, you know, uh, Professor Elliot, will you say a word to the, the bride and groom? And she looked at the groom and said, uh, you married her because you love her. You loved her, but from now, every day on, you love her because you married her. She's going to, there's, there's something now, this is now a disposition. It's a, it's a habit that you have to get. And let's look at each of the things. Notice what's the very first thing that the love is dependent on and the love demonstrates. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And then what did he do? He gave. He gave. He gave of himself. This is a reference to the cross. He loved the church and he gave. Love by its very definition is giving. It's not taking. It's not consuming. It's giving. Think about how it represents the Father. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. Love gives. The Father gave the Son. The Son gives his life and then gives the Holy Spirit so that we can experience that he gave. But then notice some of the other words. He he gave himself, but then look why in verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. You know, that's a way of saying, like, put her apart, make her special, and then make her beautiful. Turn her into who she was meant to be. He's going to sanctify her. And then notice on down in 27, so that he could present her to himself in splendor. The whole goal is to get her to splendor. Splendor and beauty is not where the marriage starts on the wedding day. Splendor and beauty is the goal of where it should end. It's kind of an upward curve where you're moving towards splendor and beauty. But what's so fascinating is here you have to actively love someone to glory. You actively love them to splendor. What is splendor? What is glory? God's glory is His divinity on display. His divinity on display, all of his, his majesty, his goodness, his truth, his holiness, his beauty, all of these characteristics, his divinity is displayed. And so what is our glory? Our glory is his divinity displayed through our character. His love, his peace, his hope, his joy, all of these character traits is then displayed. That's what splendor is in all of its beautiful fullness. It's the fruits of the Spirit made full in your life. And then notice what he does. How do you get there? Look in verse uh, 20, 26. He sanctified her. So what he has to do is he has to cleanse her by the washing of the word. She's got to be clean. He's got to cleanse her. And you think of the washing of the word, cleanse her. This is not like a romantic bubble bath. This is not bubble bath with candles and chocolate and Yanni or whoever you would listen to playing in the background. This is the kind of cleansing. All right, so kids, you're in here. You can help explain this to me because this is a mystery of fatherhood to me. Why is it that every child hates having their face wiped? Have you ever seen a child that appreciates having his face? And it's unbelievable. I don't know how it happens. Like our two-year-old son, he can be away for four minutes, and then he can come back, and there's this most un. I mean, like a, a chemist would have a field day, like, what is this? And it's this uh, mixture of 
calcified snot and dirt, and then there's like chocolate mixed in it, and then there's like a peanut stuck on his cheek, and I'm like, how, how did this happen? And I'm like, look, look, dude, don't you, like, do you feel that? <laughs> there's five pounds of gunk on your face. Like, don't you feel that? And then every one of you knows, every mother's had the experience, because what does mom have to do? Mom sees that, and then she gets the, you know, it's the, it's the thumb of, it's like, the kid's thing is the thumb of death, because she's like, come here, and then she lights her thumb, and she takes the head, and she's like sawing on the face, trying to get the peanut snot concoction off. And what does every child do? I mean, they start squirming and screaming. You would think you were torturing that child. Just this past week, Cynthia, like our windows were open and our son is screaming. She's like, people are going to call the police on us. What are you doing? I'm, like, I'm trying to get him to blow his nose. I don't think that's unreasonable. Just blow your nose, child. It's like, how does this happen? And all of you, you know, actually what happens is you've lived for 25, 35, 45, 55 years and <laughs> this soul snot is caked on you, and you actually can't see it. You can't feel it. And you need someone to love you enough to get that thumb and just scrub it off. That's how he cleanses you. He cleanses you by the washing of the Word. It's people who love you and a Word who can teach you coming together, scrubbed into your life, that gets this washed off. And then notice the last two things that he does is he, he nourishes, verse 29, no, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Christ's primary activity for the church is to nourish it and cherish it, to nourish. Now, this is an interesting word. It just means to develop, to, to feed. It's used 29 times in the Septuagint, that Greek word always referring in the Old Testament to someone providing food generally for children. What I find so interesting, I only used a couple times in the New Testament. The next time it's used is in chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The ESV translated it, but bring them up. It's actually the exact same word for nourish. Bring them up in discipline and instruction. So the way you nourish them is you, you teach them, you instruct them, you discipline them, you nourish. And so that's the word there, you nourish, you uh, you, you feed. You know, one of the whole goal of nourishing is to bring you to a place of health and vitality in life. I mean, the image here is the very opposite of like a dead-end life, where you commit to yourself to these people and this family and all of your avenues and hopes for living a good life or uh, closed down. This is life dedicated to your thriving. You nourish. But then there's this beautiful word that he cherishes. So nourish is kind of a stereotypical father thing. You discipline and you instruct, but then cherish. It's interesting, this word's only used one other time in the New Testament. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul says, we were with you like a nursing mother, cherishing you, keeping you warm, holding you. He said, this is the, dis the disposition of biblical masculinity is a man who's strong enough to feed and to hold, to nourish and to cherish. And it's just worth pausing and think like, husbands, let that land on you. You know, our role and responsibility is to love our wives like Christ loved the church. There's no higher calling. There's no higher responsibility. There's nothing, and what's more impossible? 
That's why you have to have the power of the Holy Spirit, because you can't do this on your own. But maybe, you know, one of the terrible things about being a preacher is I have to live with this all week. So all week, it's just been ringing in my head, am I nourishing and am I cherishing? Nourish and cherish. Is this nourishing and cherishing? These people God has given me to bring to a place of thriving. Do we nourish? Do we cherish? Where do we get the power to do this? And one of the remarkable things about here is this remarkable image of what marriage is, is you'll only have the power and the perspective to do this if you understand marriage's place. And marriage's place is second. It's second. It's not ultimate. It's penultimate. The place of Christian marriage is not the ultimate experience in your life. Romantic love is not the ultimate experience of your life. You can experience full humanity and not ever be married. Jesus was the ultimate human being. He wasn't married. This is secondary. See, if you actually make marriage ultimate, your marriage will turn out to be a disaster. Because if you're in a traditional culture and you make marriage ultimate, what it's like is like taking you know, boiling hot coffee and then pouring it into a little plastic Dixie cup. Like it can't, it's not designed to sustain the heat and the pressure and the weight of, of what you're pouring in. And so if you make marriage ultimate in your life, it's not designed to take that weight. It's designed to be secondary. If you're in a traditional culture, you make it ultimate. You have things like uh, honor killings. You know, in our culture, our Western culture, where we think it's ultimately about my fulfillment. You know, Ernest Becker, who's not a Christian, but looked out into the world in the 80s and said, you know, something's happening in America where we don't believe in God anymore. So God's off the table. But we can't live without transcendence. And the problem is so many people are taking that need for God in their life, and they're trying to pour that into their romantic relationships. And they can't sustain them. They can't hold them. Even the best marriage is a foretaste of Christ's spousal love for His church. And one of the beautiful things about the cross, because you, you know, in our culture, I think you can think, all right, if I don't ever you know, find someone to love me like this, then I'll never experience real love. And that's just not the case. You know, there's certain things I'm just so thankful I don't have to experience. Like, I am so glad I'm not a middle schooler in the social media age. Every non-middle schooler right now ought to be saying hallelujah. Thank you, I didn't have to go through middle school in the world's social media. I'm actually glad I'm not single right now. Because you have to try and, you know, I don't know how I could take the pressure to try and present myself Constant, like presenting yourself in a digital space and having people look and then turn away. Like, is there anyone who will really look at me and see me as I am and then stay? Isn't that one of the heart cries of every human being? Like, is there anyone who will really see where I don't have to pretend? I don't have to put up this, this front to make people think I actually like classical music and I'm a whole lot more put together than I really am. I don't have to pretend. Is there anyone who can see me as I am and they're going to stay? And the beauty, the power of the gospel is that Christ looked into the eyes of his church and he saw her in all of her selfishness and all of her immaturity and all of her cluelessness, and he stayed. He intentionally came down and he stayed. Jesus looked at all of our flaws and he stayed. He doesn't love us because we're beautiful. It's his love that makes us beautiful. 
It's his love that's going to get us there. But none of us are there yet. That's the beauty, the power, and the hope of the gospel. We're not there yet. But his absolute commitment through his spirit and his people is to get us there. He didn't love us because we're beautiful. He loved us to make us beautiful. So that means no man, no woman can ever provide the ultimate need of your heart. And if you look to it uh, from them, you'll crush them and you'll crush you. You can't look for another what can only be found in Christ. I don't know if you saw, but Tim Tebow got engaged this week. They were at Disney, engaged to Miss Universe. One caption on Twitter I liked, it says, the homeschool boy is marrying Miss Universe. And, uh, and if you saw some of the things he talked about, you know, she's, you know, wonderful, she's this, she's perfect, like Mary Poppins' daughter, perfect in every way. And that's a sweet thing for somebody just engaged. You admire that, but you hope they don't try and live in the light of that. Because she, maybe more than other people, have significant, deep flaws. You might say, oh, you don't know. She's wonderful. This person that I love so much is such a wonderful girl. She might be a great girl, but she's going to be a lousy God. You might say, oh, this guy, he's so sweet. He might be the sweetest boy on the planet, but he's a terrible savior. And if you try to make either one of those, those things, you'll ruin them and ruin you. Don't look for another what can only be found in Christ. So let's a couple applications as we wind down and think, all right, how can we apply some of these things? Just a couple things to make note. One of the dangers that most marriages experience as they go through marriage is they just, they lose the, the vitality, that, that, that emotional vitality. They lose the sense of oneness. Do you notice what he calls to? That the whole call is to oneness, that you'll be one. And if you're going to maintain that oneness, you have to let your spouse have access to your flaws. It's not only two-year-old boys who really like to squirm when people try to wash their face. We all do it, and you will not ever grow unless you give them access to your flaws. You can't, um, you can't hide. You can't say, well, no, you mind your own business. That's none of your business. You're, devi- you're denying that one flesh relationship. And here's the reality. But I'm sorry, girls. You can't wash your own face. You can't wash your face because you can't feel or see the things that are really staining you. You need someone outside of you to love you and to watch you with your own willpower, with your own reason, with your own smarts, your own savvy, your own compassion, your own character are not strong enough to clean you at the deepest level where you really need to be cleaned. Everyone needs this redemptive assistance from those people around us, friends, spouses, ancestors, traditions, heroes, institutions like the church. We need help cleaning ourselves and getting to a place at uh, a place of splendor. So if oneness, another is wholeness. If you want to experience real wholeness, look to Jesus. You know, maybe the APA is not the best place to get our definition of masculinity from. You want to know what a real man is? Look to Jesus. Look how he gave. Look how he sacrificed. Look how he nourished. Look how he cherished. If you want to be a man, then take authority the way Jesus took authority and said, I will die before I allow you to languish. 
That's authority. And if you want to be a woman, look to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about how women patterning themselves after Christ's love for his people. That's the ultimate helper. And if you're a single person this morning, how can you be completed? Marriage is only an analogy of the gospel. The real helper you need is Christ, not another person, ultimately. And the real authority you need, ultimately, is Christ, not a husband. And then last, just fullness. Notice, uh, how does Jesus bring you to a place of beauty? It's by nourishing and cherishing. He's nourishing you. And so think about your own soul. Is your soul malnourished? And the way he nourishes you is through his word. This is one of the reasons we don't want our kids' workers out of the service more than a couple times a month because this is one of the primary ways Christ nourishes you. And you need to feed. So when you choose to go to Disney instead of coming to church, you're intentionally malnourishing your soul. You need nourishment. He's providing food. Are you eating? He's eating in his word, spirit. It's word, people, community. Don't do your soul damage by neglecting the nourishment that he's offering. Let's close in prayer.